According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 16 once again. Luke chapter 16. Was this our third session in this chapter now? I think. Okay. Got just a couple of details to tie together under uh, point four, and then we'll be ready for the rich man and Lazarus and uh, the guided tour we receive of uh, of hell in uh, point five. Not really a guided tour. Ezekiel's the one who gets the guided tour, uh, complete with all the various layers and levels and the deepest of the deep in the abyss. Uh, here in Luke 16, we get a, uh, a glimpse I suppose it's more fair to say than a tour. Uh, but we have details, uh, personal details, that are on exhibit in chapter 16 that grab our attention, and that's what we want to focus on when we get to those uh, particular verses in 19 through 31. But for today, though, we're wrapping up the last uh, of the uh, verses down through verse 18. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do uh, acknowledge your glory here today and identify with the truth and the reality, Father, that none of us uh, deserves to be here and we have no uh, right or entitlement to be uh, brought into your counsel, to be invited into your thinking. And yet, Father, it is your good pleasure to to do just that. Father, you, you love to glorify your plan and your word through your son and we thank you that you've seen fit to reveal your thinking to us in the written word that you've seen fit to indwell each one of us in our current dispensation with your holy spirit so that we can know we all things father even the deep things of god father we thank you for these amazing privileges and blessings we ask once again on this day for the teaching ministry of the holy spirit to open the eyes of our understanding Give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have completed three main points of study, if I have marked my paper correctly. Last week I gave you main point three and subpoints A, B, C, and D. Am I correct? I am not correct. What did I give you last week? I stopped after B. Okay, well... I guess then uh, I ought to give you C and D. How about that? (laughs) All right. We're dealing with stewardship. And uh, the example in this chapter is a terrible example in terms of his personal character. He was an unbeliever. He was wicked. He did horrible things. But he still, in spite of all that, sets the uh, principles very clearly that we can make application from ourselves. And so from verse 10 to verse 13, we have principles that we can glean out of these verses. And let's just read through. He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So go ahead and for your own application, take the uh, unrighteous steward out of focus and put yourself in there and identify how are you fulfilling stewardship responsibilities as a member of the body of Christ and understand that you might start with very little things and uh, and recognize how that's preparation for greater things, preparation for greater 
responsibility. That's why <clears throat> you have the uh, requirements in Timothy on, in terms of family life, marriage life, children. How does a man uh, raise his family? How is he in his marriage? Those are the responsibilities that will give you an indicator. Because if he's not faithful in his marriage, why would he be faithful in his church? See, if he's a liar, if he's a cheat, and that's just a, a flaw in character, and it's going to be uh, exhibited in any degree of responsibility. So the proportion here becomes important. Small things and faithfulness in small things exhibit the potential for future ministry that the Lord may open those doors. So stewardship is a contrast. It's a contrast between faithfulness and unrighteousness. And that contrast is established in proportionate terms. So this is subpoint A. Stewardship is a contrast between faithfulness and unrighteousness in proportionate terms to where little things are contrasted with bigger things. The pattern is the pattern. And we're going to see that in time, but ultimately we're going to see the fulfillment of this in terms of what is assigned to us for our eternal reward uh, on the basis of faithfulness in these little things. To me, the best illustration of this is Joseph in the Old Testament. You see Joseph, he's faithful in his father's house, and what does it get him? He gets him thrown down a pit and left for dead and sold off into slavery. Uh, so then he's uh, placed in Potiphar's house, and he's faithful there. What does that get him? Uh, you know, the charge of adultery with Mrs. Potiphar and thrown into prison. And he's faithful there. What does that get him? You know, each step of the way, it's, it's a wonderful example because Joseph is so long-suffering and so faithful, it doesn't matter. And even if each step of the way, it seems like he's going from bad to worse. And you would think, you know, if you were less faithful than Joseph, you'd start grumbling and you'd start complaining. You wouldn't put up with half of what he put up with. Well, the point being, though, God took him step by step by step of everywhere he needed to be so that he could be exposed to the chief cupbearer and, and butler and then ultimately freed and set uh, to service in Pharaoh's house. So uh, there's the example, faithful in little things and you're entrusted in bigger things as far as that goes. Now, secondly, later point B, stewardship is a contrast in temporal slash eternal terms. Temporal, of course, means within the confines of time and eternal means outside of time. So we see this here in verse 11. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And this is a, a use of true here that contrasts. It's not to say that uh, earthly money is somehow counterfeit or fraudulent or not legitimate. It is legitimate, but in comparison's sake, the one is simply an anticipation of the other. It is uh, oftentimes the uh, contrast in life, that we have life and then we have the true life. Not to say that physical life is false or fraudulent or, or counterfeit, but compared to the reality of eternal life in Christ, that's the true life. That's the true light, as it were. Then we have verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And the recognition that our stewardship here on earth is giving way for blessings in eternity that will be possessions. Uh, in in uh, strict terms, a steward doesn't possess anything. He manages the possessions of his master. Uh, they're not his estates. They're not his investments. 
Uh, but what we're looking for in heaven is not to continue on in a stewardship or managing the Father's possessions in heavens. We're actually going to be receiving possessions as a part of our heirship in Christ. And so it's a contrast between that which others own and that which we own. A contrast between that which others own and that which we own. It's a principle of stewardship. Right now we are stewards of another's household, God's household, his, the administration of his affairs here on earth. I think there's illustrations here as well. Part of child training includes this principle because in terms of uh, chores and responsibilities and children are entrusted to uh, take care of uh, you know, their room, to clean their room or to make their beds or to, uh, to accomplish uh, chore uh, responsibilities within uh, a house that's not theirs. See? And it's, uh, it's always uh, a blessing to uh, be able to remind them of that whenever... Uh, uh, maybe there's a prideful uh, application that needs to be addressed or something and so forth. If, uh, uh, if there's ever a tendency to boast about what's theirs or to insist upon their rights or different things like that, uh, they, they insist on different things and, and can, can get very possessive, for example. Uh, well, this is, these are my clothes or this is my room, see. And I like to stop periodically and say, no, no, wait a minute. That is my room, a part of my house. I'm very graciously allowing you to sleep in that room on a frequent basis. But uh, don't confuse the issue here as far as things are concerned. Anyway, but hopefully in the process, again, this is in the enforced humility of child raising and the discipline. But they learn how to take care of things that are not technically theirs. But it's preparing them for how to be stewards when uh, such ownership uh, responsibilities do uh, become theirs. And so that's the contrast, and it's described there in verse 12. Faithful in the use of that which is another's. And uh, we want to consider that. This is um, really the uh, an important principle as it applies to the ministry of the church. A pastor needs to know that those aren't his sheep. They're somebody else's sheep. They're Jesus Christ's sheep. They're, they're God's sheep. You understand that? In First Peter chapter 5, it says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, uh, you know, not you know, voluntarily according to the will of God. Um, you need to recognize it's not yours. And even the children God blesses you with, or technically, I mean, actually, they're not yours. He graced you and, and allowed you to bring them into the world and, and, and entrusted you with the responsibility to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But uh, the scripture says all souls belong to me. They're, they're the fathers. They're not yours. You have the privilege of raising them and, and training them up. And uh, these are these are all attitudes we need to understand. And again, I just highlight it there out of verse 12. And then the fourth, the fourth principle from verse 13 God and mammon are mutually exclusive objects. Mutually exclusive objects. And my sentence is hanging. How did I do that? Objects of uh, something. Let's fill in the blanks. Objects of service and or worship. That's what I wanted to say with that. Service and or worship. And here is the simple explanation 
I was asked on Sunday, how come you don't hand out your notes ahead of time? It would be great to have your notes in hand before class starts so we can follow along. And, and uh, well, you know, there are pastors who do that. I uh, prefer not to. And here's a reason why. Uh, occasionally, frequently, there's glitches and issues that come up in the process of teaching. And also beyond that. There are also several times have been occasions in the process of teaching a class that um, a scripture will come up or that a a memory will hit or something will happen and will connect things together. And and the live dynamic of the Holy Spirit ministering in a face-to-face ministry is amazing. And so I'll go home after class and we've hit two or three scriptures and they weren't in the notes and they weren't on my paper or anything, but they needed to be. And so have the opportunity to go back and revise the notes and add those extra scriptures in there so that when the study is complete, that uh, that all of those verses find their way into the finished product. All right, so let's finish the sentence then. Again, point D, God and mammon are mutually exclusive objects of service and or worship. Service and or worship. And here's the point. You need to ask yourself, what are you serving and what are you worshiping? And if it's a tool, then it should serve you. If it's a God, then you should serve it. Does this make sense? And so we want to make clear that money, represented in a personification here called mammon. All right. If you wonder what mammon is, mammon, all mammon is is money. But it's more than money because it's money that has been exalted and elevated to godhood. All right. And so any of us are vulnerable to that. The world, of course, that's that's the world's way of thinking. Right. Money solves everything and they serve money and they worship money. So if if money gets exalted to deity status, you can give it a proper name, as the scripture does here, calling it mammon. And you cannot have two gods. There are. First of all, there's only one true God anyway. And he's a jealous God. He commands you to not serve these phonies posing as gods. And we want to make clear, again, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. So if you are a bond slave, you've got a single owner. And uh, in the case of a uh, bond slave of a god, you have one god that you serve. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. There described as being the expression mutually exclusive, meaning you cannot have them both. They exclude the other. One excludes the other. The other excludes the first one. That makes it mutual, mutually exclusive. And so uh, you have to evaluate who are you serving and what serves you. Are you serving God? And does money serve you? Or have you turned it around backwards? Are you serving money? And does God serve you, at least in your thinking or in your prideful arrogance uh, about, um, sadly, a lot of believers take that approach that God uh, serves them. God exists basically to meet their needs. And uh, God is a genie in a bottle and they, uh, they rub God when they feel like it and they demand their miracles when they need it. And uh, beyond that, 
uh, when it's not otherwise convenient, then God can go ahead and go back to the bottle, uh, you know, back inside. We'll we'll call the genie forth uh, next time we're in a bit of a scrape or we need uh, our selfish needs kind of met. God is not to be worshipped in this prideful attitude I'm describing. God is simply uh, to be used. God is a tool, a handy helper, a device, a a labor-saving device or what have you. They view God as a convenience when convenient. You understand. And um, money, of course, is the priority. Money is what we serve. Money is what we worship. Money is what we devote ourselves to. And um, we we might contribute a little bit towards the things of the Lord, just so long as it doesn't impact uh, the other things we have in mind for what we're going to do with our money. <laughs> All right? As long as it doesn't impact my vacation... Or my uh, lifestyle, my standard of living, uh, maybe uh, you know my retirement expectations or whatever else that I need that money for. Okay, now you understand this whole conversation has been entirely from the world's point of view. Let's turn it back around the right way. Worship God and let money serve you. Don't serve money. Money serves you. It is a tool. He has provided a proportion of it for your uh, blessing. He's provided a proportion of it for your needs. He knows what your needs are. And he expects you to use it as a tool in the right way. So uh, money should be like any other circumstance and detail of life. You master it. Because if it masters you, things are backwards. We, we illustrated that last week in terms of alcohol. And this is where the alcoholic has uh, the, the things backwards. He, he doesn't control his drinking. He can't drink in moderation. He doesn't control the drinking in the sense of um, uh, the recreational uh, relaxation of a glass of wine or the provision of what God designed alcohol to do as a stimulant to the human experience. Instead of controlling the drinking, drinking controls him. And that's backwards, and that's wrong, and that's where drinking becomes idolatry as far as that goes. And I, like, I, I prefer to keep things in their biblical terminology and use the language of idolatry and, as opposed to uh, the world tries to redefine idolatry in terms of uh, addictions and medical uh, sicknesses and illnesses and things like that. If you listen to the world, then there is no sin. There are no, there is no idolatry. It's just syndromes and addictions and, and sicknesses and diseases and things of that nature. In any event, who are we serving and what are we worshiping? That's, uh, that's the issue here. All right. Now, all of this takes us back now to the Pharisees. As we see in verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, um, you can imagine they, uh, they probably raised their eyebrows at verse 10. They maybe started to sneer in verse 11. They probably snorted after verse 12. And then it was an actual guffaw in uh, verse 13. Uh, their hostility built and built and built. And then they are out and out scoffing at him by the time we reach verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. As far as they were concerned, he was a nut job from outer space, right? I mean, he just didn't, he was not from their realm of thinking. He wasn't from their experience. Everything he was trying to communicate was just completely alien to their way of thinking. 
In their minds, yes, they loved money. It was their status symbol. It was their uh, visible testimony to how righteous they were. That Yahweh was blessing them magnificently because they were such pious, righteous, worshipful, devoted Jewish people. See, And if the Jews kept themselves separated from the Gentiles, the Pharisees kept themselves separated from non-Pharisee Jews. They were a cut above. They were a set apart. That's what the expression Pharisee even means as far as being set apart. So, uh, they start scoffing at him. And, they, and so he says to them, now he's going to hit them and he's going to hit them hard. And in, in some respects, it seems a bit disjointed or it seems that um, these verses are, are kind of random or not connected in any way. They are. Their connection is the Pharisees. Their connection is he's going to hit them with four issues. And we're going to give it to you, A, B, C, and D. It's verse 15, 16, 17, 18. And at first it may seem disjointed, but you understand the common thread that links them all together is these were the blind spot, arrogance issues that the Pharisees uh, failed with. So he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The things that human viewpoint magnifies, God is disgusted with them, because they are contrary to his way of thinking. So this is point four in our outline. The Pharisees scoffed at his teaching, but Jesus dismissed them with four short points. Jesus dismissed them with four short points. And he lays it out here in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. And the first thing he has to say to them, is that self-justification is the evil substitution of human viewpoint for divine viewpoint. Self-justification is the evil. We've been studying evil in ministry workshop. Remember, evil is Satan's philosophy. Evil is the way of looking at the world contrary to the plan of God. Self-justification is the evil substitution of human viewpoint for divine viewpoint. And when we start to venture into these waters, we're in trouble. When we start to justify ourselves or talk ourselves into saying, oh, well, we're okay. We're all right with what we're doing. Let's recognize we cannot justify ourselves. We are not the absolute, unconditional, eternal standard of righteousness. Let's reorient back to divine viewpoint and recognize that uh, our praise comes from the Lord or doesn't come from the Lord. And eternally, it will be His good pleasure to... Uh, decree what he decrees at the Bema seat. So justifying yourself in the sight of men. Are men okay with it? Yeah. Is, is that our standard? How sad. Think about it. Cultural uh, standards, norms and standards, they're shifting all the time. And generally they're sliding downhill. <laughs> Even unbelievers identify with the fact that our cultural morality is a fraction of what it was in our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation. You know, at least, even unbelievers understand that at least in days gone by, there was some kind of um, shame, public shame. There was some kind of, uh, there was a recognition 
For instance, if a, if a high school girl was pregnant out of wedlock, there was at least a recognition that society's standards are, are violated and that, you know, the absolute rights and wrongs are involved here and, and that kind of thing. And, and typically there was a, uh, uh, usually recourse of whatever sort. There was, the girl might have to leave school or go to a special school or, or go stay with family or something. Um, because it was just, that's just what it was. Say now, now it's celebrated. Oh my! You know, now we got nurseries in the in the high schools, and you've got daycare, and you got all, the, all kinds of things going on, to uh, not only to uh, tolerate what's sinful, but to glamorize and promote it, and and to um, to celebrate it. So even unbelievers have recognized that our culture standards have sunk, and uh, which is interesting. Our uh, evaluation of, in terms of justification cannot be on the floating whims of culture. Uh, you know, what happens when the society says, hey, it's okay for you to do such and such, right? That make it right. Not in God's eyes. All right. So self-justification. The second thing that he hits the Pharisees with. He says, uh, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Everyone is forcing his way into it. Remember when uh, John the Baptist and his popularity was rising and, and everyone was going out to be baptized. So who shows up? The Pharisees show up and they come out there and they're going to act like, oh, yeah, they're all repenting and they want to go get baptized. Everyone was doing it. And he called them a brood of vipers. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What, what are you doing here? See, like crashing a White House party or something. You have no business even being here. You weren't invited. And I find this interesting. The gospel of the kingdom of God is a matter for grace invitation, not forceful entry. The gospel of the kingdom of God is a matter for grace invitation, not forceful entry. And this gets uh, applied in a lot of different ways. But as far as the Pharisees were concerned, <laughs> they were in charge. They're going to stay in charge. They were in charge before John and Jesus started their ministries. And by golly, they're gonna, they're gonna, they want to stay in charge. No matter what uh, gets announced or if the kingdom's coming, well then... They're going to be in charge. That's what they think. But uh, it's interesting because he talks about a standard of righteousness. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you have no place in the kingdom. So uh, it's kind of hard to be in charge when you're not even there. <laughs> you don't even have a place in the kingdom. I mean, you're not even you're excluded. Out there at the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the other folks that try to barge their way in. So again, we read it in verse 16. The law and the prophets. That's another expression, by the way, for the Old Testament. This is a term. Sometimes it's expanded into threefolds. It's called the law, the writings, and the prophets. Or the law, the psalms, and the prophets. Or sometimes it's just simply the law and the prophets. There's other cases where it's just simply the law. And, and all it's referencing is the Hebrew Scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament. So Jesus says, you know, the Old Testament was proclaimed. Until John. They had all the years of the revelation. Then they had the 400 silent years. And the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is what was preached. And then John shows up. The herald, the forerunner. 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Christ is about to be born. And then he comes to be baptized at the River Jordan. And, and uh, here they are on the verge of their kingdom. And they think it's a matter for force, domination, sovereign control, human religion. And it's not. It's a matter of gospel, uh, grace, invitation. This, by the way, is why it's uh, ridiculous. The uh, uh, traditions and practices of the various branches of liturgical Christianity where uh, infants are baptized. What are they doing? Are they forcing them into the kingdom? That's what they tell you they're doing. Yeah, they're baptizing them into the body of Christ. The infant doesn't know what he's doing. He's just an, an infant. An idiot. He just doesn't know anything. He's an ignorant baby, clueless. All he knows is whether he's hungry or not, whether he's tired or not, whether he stinks or not. And he has basically uh, those kind of stimulus responses. <laughs> he can cry when there's a need to be remedied, and he can, uh, you know, not cry or be relatively baby happy when things are uh, things are on a on a good even keel. Forcing into the kingdom, baptizing infants, forced conversions, national conversions. A king gets saved or says he gets saved, and so now he's going to thrust his entire country has to convert now to his, to his uh, religion. See, that's why uh, you know Ukraine became Orthodox because their king became Orthodox, and he kind of considered the distinctions between the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox, and basically said, we're going to follow the Eastern Orthodox. And so his whole country converted. Did they all get saved? No. And a, a population base accepted a religious system. And uh, we have what we have described here, forcing into a kingdom. Well, that's just not going to happen. How do you force your way in? See. So self-justification and forceful entry. Two things that uh, he's just nailing these Pharisees at, because this was how they operated. This was how they uh, they approached the situation. Then in verse 17, he says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of a law to fail. In verse 17. <clears throat> Notice, the gospel of the kingdom of God does not nullify the law. Here's a principle. The gospel of the kingdom of God does not nullify the law. It's a twisted irony of uh, Jewish history that the Pharisees nullified the law. <laughs> I don't know if you ever think of it in those terms. That's why I say it's a twisted irony of Jewish history. Because in the in the scope of all things Jewish, the if you ask if you ask me or anyone to find a group of Jewish people that was more externally observant, dedicated, devoted, famous for their allegiance to the law, you can't name a group more so than the Pharisees. And yet, what did they do invariably? with their traditions, with their manipulations, with their uh, various uh, 
mechanisms by which they controlled people. They nullified the law. They set aside the law. And Jesus even rebuked them on this because they said, oh, you're violating the traditions. And he says, your, vi- your traditions are violating the law. And he exposed their Corban manipulations where they, um, under the law, they were expected to care for their parents. And under their traditions, they found uh, a way to shelter their assets to supposedly dedicate them to the Lord and thereby was simply a, a means by which they could, uh, it was a tax shelter. It was a, a money laundering scam. And Jesus nailed them on it. But any, everything they did, they, uh, they so perverted the law, they, they turned the Sabbath into their tool in controlling things, and the Lord of the Sabbath didn't even recognize what they were calling Sabbath. They kept accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. He didn't break the Sabbath not once, never, never sinned. He violated their traditions quite often. I think he even uh, deliberately tweaked their their, uh, self-justified, prideful, arrogant approaches to the Sabbath. We see that time and time again. He's... There's a sick guy there and the withered hand needs to be healed and Jesus stands him up and then glares at the audience. Says, I'm about to heal this guy and you know it and I know it. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it a sin? They can't say a word. <laughs> the gospel of the kingdom of God does not nullify the law. They nullified the law or tried to all the time. He says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter or the law to fail. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And everything that's going to be unveiled in the millennial kingdom is going to be not in abrogation of Mosaic law, but in um, the greatest realization Mosaic law has ever seen. It's going to be lived out in the hearts and lives of the Jewish people through the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And uh, they're going to have the law written upon their heart. They're going to be the living embodiment of what he fulfilled in his life. They're going to illustrate to the Gentile nations for a thousand years. And uh, Mosaic law was only external do's and don'ts. Mosaic law had uh, you know adultery for a violation. Kingdom law is going to have mental attitude lust as a violation. And Israel will be the illustration for the Gentile nations of what it means to be obedient, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. So self-justification, uh, forceful entry. Law nullification. These are all things that the Pharisees were guilty of. And then divorce. Flagrant divorce. A whole school of the Pharisees uh, justified divorce for any reason whatsoever. She burned dinner. Goodbye. Right? (laughs) Man. Show me a woman that hasn't burned dinner sometime or another in the process of... I mean, it happens to everybody. Come on. You know... Kingdom law is even more humanly impossible than Mosaic law. Kingdom law is even more humanly impossible than Mosaic law. There are a couple other places where Jesus is addressing the adultery issues and the divorce question. And even his own disciples were a bit speechless and saying, this is impossible. And that's the point. It is impossible. 
is humanly impossible. So if you're, if you're trying to measure up and impress God with how righteous you are, forget it. But if you uh, want to see what God can do on your behalf, when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, when God accomplishes what we cannot do, if you want to enter into His labor, now that's a different animal. Now we're talking about uh, His plan unfolding in the Millennial Kingdom. And, of course, we have similar statements we make in our own church age. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So, if you're married and you spot somebody else, <laughs> um, it's adultery, plain and simple. And you can't dodge the adultery charge by, uh, you know, fixing the paperwork ahead of time. By uh, divorcing and making sure that's legal, that's clear, okay, we finalize that date, all right, that paperwork's done, now here's marriage, and so forth. Uh, maybe you made it right in the, in the, uh, the, the, the dates on the certificates are in uh, some kind of a sequence there where you've justified it in your mind, and you can stand before men and say, oh, no, I didn't commit adultery. But you did. Because what did you do? You divorced her in order to, to sleep with her, is what you were doing. And so you, you made the paperwork work out right. Oh, isn't that great? That's how pharisaical of you. <laughs> yeah, make the paperwork look right. But you divorced her so you can marry this one. See, what's the difference between that and just Tiger Woods adultery in a cheap hotel room somewhere? Adultery is adultery. Not to insult Tiger Woods. I don't expect any of those hotel rooms were cheap. <laughs> All right. They were probably very luxurious hotel rooms. All right. Kingdom law. You know, you go through the Sermon on the Mount. You go through it there in Matthew 5. And, and he's not nullifying any of them. Is he nullifying any of them? Does he nullify the murder thing? No, he doesn't nullify it. He adds to it and says, you know what? You ever been mad at somebody? <laughs> You're a murderer. All right. I was a murderer yesterday. Terrible. I got angry. But in Matthew chapter 5, he expands all of these. He expands adultery. He expands murder. He expands, he takes things back, not just to the external deeds, but to the mental attitude behind those deeds. And highlights these issues. And this here, to me, the whole Sermon on the Mount and all three of these chapters, this is the uh, constitution of the Millennial Kingdom. This is uh, the system under which they're going to be operating. All right, I was going to grab a, uh, a verse out of here, but... It was off the top of my head anyway, which means it may not be uh, the passage I was exactly thinking of. What I'm thinking of is the... Um, I'm sorry, it's not in the Sermon on the Mount. He comes back to the divorce question in Matthew 19. That's the verse I was thinking of. And uh, he says... Uh, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with the wife is like this, it's better not to marry. 
the, the disciples were rather uh, exasperated at this point. They said, this, this seems impossible. We'll handle that. We haven't been to Matthew 19 yet, so we'll have that coming up. All right. Well, the Pharisees scoffed at his teaching, but he dismissed them with four short points. Just laid it on out there. Boom, 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 boom. Hit them four different areas. All four things that uh, that were issues in which uh, the Pharisees were rather lacking. You know, I don't know. There's How much of this can we imitate? How much of this can we... Um, I don't know. I think if we, if you're led by the Spirit of, of God to be uh, short with an, with an adversary, then um, just leave that with the Lord and, and don't, uh, don't sweat it. I think as a rule, uh, we are to follow the scriptural admonishments that uh, our speech is to be with grace as though seasoned with salt. We might give an account. We might give an answer to each one. I think as a general rule, uh, Christians in our communication with others ought to be um, ought to be very gracious in our conversation because that's what the Scripture says. And, and as a rule, Jesus was. But now, as a rule is one thing, but on occasion, with an exception to the rule, if in fact uh, I am in the pulpit and teaching and an opponent comes in here and wants to stir up something or stand up or mock something or what have you, um, would I possibly be led to imitate Jesus' approach on this? Possibly. You know, at some point, the security deacons will show you out and I'll deal with you after class or something of that nature. Uh, but he, he hits the Pharisees just, you know, boom, 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 and lays it out there. You know, John the Baptist, you know, you brood of vipers, what are you even doing here? You know, if a God-hater, Bible skeptic comes in here, well, see ya. This place isn't for you. This is an assembly of disciples of Jesus Christ that are studying and worshiping the, the Word of God. If that's not your focus, then this is not your place. Goodbye. See. Seasoned with salt, as with grace. All right. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus illustrate the realities of life and death. And uh, I believe what we see here is the, it's often called a parable. I, I personally don't view it as a parable. I view it as a, uh, an illustration, a true story. In whatever time period it takes place, we don't know if... Uh, Lazarus and the rich man here were contemporaries with the Lord or if they lived in a previous time frame. There's no uh, context that tells us uh, in what age or what um, time frame this event took place. But what we do see here, though, is the um, an illustration of what we started with way back in chapter not just 16, but 15 as well, when Tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus, and the Pharisees were very disapproving. And they, uh, they felt that it was wrong. And so we have a whole series of teaching in chapter 15 and chapter 16 that's exposing Phariseeism for what it is, prideful, arrogance, and, uh, and commending the, the true repentance. Uh, that heaven rejoices when a lost sheep is found. Heaven rejoices when a lost coin is found. Heaven rejoices when a prodigal returns to right relationship with his father. 
And so here in this uh, context then, and again, dealing with Pharisees and how they love money, well, here's a story about um, a rich man. He's called Dives in the Roman tradition. We don't have his name in our Bible, but the Latin uh, text calls him Dives. All right, so if you want to think of him as Dives, fine, but um, I'm just going to call him the rich man all through the notes and and all of that. Uh, I like the fact that we don't know his name. I like the fact that Lazarus is the name we do know because in eternity the only names that endure are the names of the redeemed, the names of the righteous, the names that are uh, victorious names, in fact, the new names that come in Christ. The unbelievers, their whatever great name they might have had on earth, uh, isn't even remembered for all eternity. So I like the fact that this rich man is left unnamed. But he's rich and things go great for him in his life until he dies. <laughs> and then uh, he dies, and uh, there's no more good things that can be said uh, because he's in hell, and that's uh, in the torment compartment of hell. So let's look at it, uh, starting in verse 19. We've got 15 minutes left, so we'll see how far we go. Uh, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. That's that's a vivid, vivid sentence there, but habitually dressed, meaning this was his custom, this was his routine, this is how he lived, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And so this is the scene. And we don't, they don't interact. Lazarus and the rich man don't interact in these early verses. But the rich man knows who he is. Uh, once they die, and Lazarus is on the good side of the, of the chasm, and the rich man is on the torment side, the fire side of the chasm, um, he knows who Lazarus is, knows him by name, knows his story. And uh, it's also interesting that not only does the rich man know who Lazarus is, the rich man's brothers know who this man is. And we'll highlight that as well when we get to these later verses. So, uh, laid at his gate. Again, there's time that passes by here. We have a, a story. This wasn't just, he, he was laid there once. This was his normal spot. He was continuously begging. This was his uh, place that he was laid daily where people coming and going could be uh, could be begged of and, and requested of. And evidently, um, none of the crumbs, none of the food, not even crumbs, were coming out of the house. And uh, the only ministry he had didn't come from the hands of human beings, but came from uh, from dogs, unclean dogs, mind you. Now, the poor man died. And was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Look how tender that language is. Carried away by the angels. Remember, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Carried away by the angels. That This speaks of, of um, the tenderness. Uh, we have this expression a couple of different times. When Rachel dies in the Old Testament, uh, she's, her soul leaves her body. She's carried away. We have this, uh, this aspect. The, uh, the rich man also died and was buried. <laughs> All right. How tender is that? Okay. Now, keep in mind, with, with both of these, with all of this, every verse here, seemingly, you can see the flip side as well that's left unstated. Was Lazarus also buried? Yeah. Of course. 
wasn't just left laying there in the open uh, outside this guy's house. His corpse wasn't, you know, left there. He, his his cadaver was also buried as well. But it's not stated because what this passage is doing is is declaring the beauty and glory on the one hand and the stark ugliness on the other hand. All right. So take the flip side as well. I believe, of course, the, the poor man was also buried. Don't get me wrong, just as the rich man was buried. I believe that the, uh, the, poor, the rich man's soul also was transported, that he descended into Sheol. And uh, the real debate is, uh, are they elect angels that are tasked with carrying the unbeliever to hell, or are they fallen angels that are tasked with carrying the unbelieving soul to hell? And I think you can make a case either way and can't prove it. And uh, it's one of those things I hope to find out when I get there. Um, but uh, all too often, though, our idea of hell is shaped by Dante's Inferno and a lot of medieval Catholic uh, superstition and things that as if hell is some kind of a domain kingdom that Satan rules. All right. He himself is subject to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, he is not king of hell in, in the sense of of how uh, he's often thought of in, in medieval Roman theology. Um, anyway, well, we'll possibly explore that a bit also. But the poor man died, was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's an expression we're going to give you here in the subpoints. Uh, let's keep in mind, this story is told, we don't know the time frame, but whatever the time frame is, it's prior to the church age. All right. So if this is a story that's contemporary with Jesus... Okay, now, it's a different Lazarus than one he's going to raise from the dead, but I think it's remarkable that he finds a story to tell with the same name of a guy, right? The same Lazarus name that can be used, so that when he does raise a different Lazarus out of the grave, uh, it should just start sparking some thoughts and memory and things like that. But um, he doesn't die and go to heaven. Abraham's bosom is not heaven. It's it's in Sheol, and the, and the I'll give you a vocabulary on this here in a moment, but the, the idea of Sheol, the idea of the grave, the idea of the underworld, okay, that everybody goes to, whether you're saved or you're lost, whether you're, uh, you have eternal life or you don't, everybody dies, everyone descends to Sheol. What we find out here is that when you descend into Sheol, there's actually two compartments. <laughs> okay? That is not as spelled out in the Old Testament. All right. The Old Testament spells out everybody going to Sheol. The Old Testament spells out two resurrections, one to life and one to shame. But the Old Testament does not say, oh, by the way, before the resurrection, there's actually two separate compartments there within Sheol. This passage does a lot to explain much of what is left unspoken in uh, Old Testament revelation. So two compartments with a gulf in between them, a great chasm, an abyss, as it were, like we talk about the bottomless pit, the abyss, all right? And uh, the abyss is between these two compartments, so there's no uh, crossing back and forth. Hmm. Back and forth. So who would cross over the other way once they... <laughs> we'll discuss that. There are people who would. Abraham admits that there are people that would abandon paradise to go minister to somebody in hell. And that's... Um, that's a sacrificial love that uh, I don't have. Uh, I think they didn't have it either until they left their carnal bodies. <laughs> but Paul would have done it. 
The Apostle Paul said he'd be accursed if he could save the Jewish people. All right, so uh, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. So keep in mind, this is different from what we have today. Today, when you die, Javier died a couple Thursdays ago, and he was absent from the body at home with the Lord. Immediately. Immediately entering into the presence of glory at the right hand of Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God the Father. That's our anticipation as church-age saints. That's our description of glory in the New Testament text, 1 Corinthians 15, other passages as well. But prior to the church age, when believers died, they were not caught up into heaven. Does that bother you? Have you been taught that before? Um, If not, we'll come back to it next week, but we'll explain the reason why Old Testament saints, their sins were forgiven, their sin was covered under atonement, the sin of the world was covered, kafir is to cover, and sin is atoned for, it's covered, it's passed over in mercy, but it's not until the Lamb of God accomplishes the work of redemption on the cross that the sin of the world is taken away. You understand that? Until the sin of the world is taken away, then believers are forgiven, they're atoned for, they're covered, their their sin is passed over, but they are not yet righteous souls made perfect until sin is taken away. And so until the cross, until Golgotha, until Jesus Christ accomplishes the redemption on the cross, that's why the book of Hebrews makes very clear the sins that were previously committed that were, that were removed at the cross. Now, of course, we're, we got hindsight. Now we're looking back and it's completed action from our standpoint. But for the Old Testament saints, they died in faith. Their sins were atoned for. They were covered, but not removed. And so they did not go to heaven. They did not go to heaven. They went down. They descended to Sheol. And uh, here we understand that they were placed in the paradise compartment of Sheol called Abraham's bosom in this passage. The only place where it's called Abraham's bosom is this passage. Paradise is the more common term. All right. In Hades, so the rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So his body was buried. His body is six feet under. But the real him is not his body, it's his soul. His living soul and his dead human spirit. His uh, real being is deeper than six feet. (laughs) All right, makes sense. His body was put in the ground, but where did his soul go? We see him here now in Hades. He lifted up his eyes. Not the physical eyeballs that are some of the first choice delicacies I think the worms and the maggots like to go for. You know, the soft organs and the... and the. Um, I like to have these classes right before lunch. The, uh, the bones are still in the dirt. And the flesh and the organs and the eyes, the eyeballs are eaten away. Alright? But in Hades he has eyes. We're going to discuss this, the nature of the uh, post, 
post-mortem body. We'll discuss that. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. All right. So, uh, so much for annihilation. So much for the, uh, the world wants to believe that after death, there's nothing. After death, just annihilation, no existence. This verse puts the lie to that evil philosophy. There's no annihilation at physical death. There is conscious awareness of circumstances after physical death. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. As I said, on this side of the chasm is flame. Sheol does not have flame on both sides. It's not every compartment that has flame. I believe there are multiple compartments. We're only seeing two here because of the um, Jewish nature of the story. Lazarus is Jewish. Uh, This man is Jewish. We don't know his name, but he calls Abraham his father. He is a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Are there other compartments for the Gentiles? There are other compartments. Uh, Yes, there are. We see uh, when Ezekiel gets his guided tour, um, the Assyrians have their level. They're at the lowest level. And then other groups have their places as well. The fallen angels have their place. The demons have their place. All right. So uh, there's flame on the torment side of hell. Hades is the word for hell. So Abraham said, child, I think it's interesting. The rich man calls him father. Abraham calls him child. Remember that during your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. (laughs) You know, I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. Lazarus. In his lifetime. um, Received bad things. You can't you can't describe it any other way. He was um, poor. He was covered with sores. He was starving. And no one cared. Except for some dogs. And Abraham rightly characterizes as bad things. Okay. Bad things. His life was bad. He had a bad life. Called a Zoe in this passage. A Zoe life, which is an interesting use of Zoe. Uh, but he had a bad life. And I find that interesting because there is a sense of entitlement that we get in our pride that somehow we are not um, expected or we should not have a bad life. We should be happy. We should have good things happen to us. Well, what if we don't? Is there something wrong? Are we out of the will of God? It didn't impact Lazarus' salvation, you notice. He made it to Abraham's bosom. And uh, from what we know, I mean, we don't know what his uh, attitude was or what fruit he bore or what his prayer ministry was like. Can you imagine laying outside that rich man's gate? What was he doing all day long? Wouldn't it be something if he was praying? Wouldn't it be something if he was interceding for the rich man and all of his friends and his brothers that would come to visit and they'd laugh at him? And uh, wouldn't it be something if he had if he was an intercessory prayer angel right there on his front porch? 
We don't know the fruit that he bore. We just have the story that we have here. So in his life, you had a good life. He had a bad life. And he did. The, the rich man had a good life. In your life, you received your good things. Luxurious clothing, the rich food, the lots of friends, the big house. Likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here. Comfort. Parakaleo. Everything we study in Second Corinthians chapter 1 on parakaleo, on comfort, encouragement, exhortation. The paraclesis, the eternal paraclesis of, of glory. Now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. You ever wonder why does why Lazarus doesn't even speak up in this whole chapter? Doesn't say a word. Doesn't say a word when he's alive out there at that gate, and he doesn't say a word now that he's in uh, paradise embracing Abraham. I'm at the top of the hour. We'll have to wrap it up here. I've got subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. So that'll be uh, a lot of ground to cover, but I think we can do <clears throat> knock it out next week. Um. But he doesn't say a word. He doesn't have anything to say to the rich man. Nothing um, positive, negative, or any other way. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't say, nya, 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 nya. <laughs> Abraham does. Abraham says, yeah, his life was a pits. Now he's got it. Hooray for him. Your life was great in human terms, and now, man, now you're in hell. Abraham has truth to communicate in a non-judgmental way. And Lazarus has nothing to say whatsoever. I continue to consider that. All right. Well, we'll come back to this. Uh, just chew on it. The man, uh, which of these two, Lazarus or the rich man? Who has the regrets? <laughs> it's the rich man. Who is it that's thinking about what he left behind? It's the rich man. He has uh, got these five brothers, and they're on their way to hell, too. He doesn't want to see them come to where he is. Of course, when he was alive, he didn't really care where they were going. He didn't care where he was going. But now that he's in hell, he doesn't want them to get there. He's got regrets. Lazarus has no regrets. None that are stated anyway. He's not thinking about people he's left behind. I think sometimes in our grieving, we like to think that, oh, well, they're thinking of me. My loved one, you know. But if we if we truly orient to the doctrine, and and uh, you, okay, you don't maybe tell the widow this, but Patricia, I think understands. Javier is not up there in heaven thinking of her, not for a moment, because he is face to face with Jesus Christ, fixing his eyes on Jesus Christ, forgetting what lies behind. He's not married to Patricia anymore. See? And uh, the folks that have gone on before, they're not looking down lovingly, watching over us, praying for us. None of that. That's Catholic theology. All right? They are face to face with Jesus Christ. All right. Well, we've got a good start on it. Next week we'll come back and give you subpoints A, B, C, and D. Actually, A through G. I think we can knock it out in a single session. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for our time together. And, Father, we're going to, link, we're going to learn some things. We'll glean some principles out of uh, paradise and, and torments. Uh, Father, mostly we're excited to understand that paradise isn't in Sheol anymore. Paradise itself has been transferred. 
Jesus Christ led captivity captive and He took paradise into the third heaven. The Apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise. And uh, he returned not being able to permit the things of which he observed. So, Father, we're thankful for that. That we're looking forward to our own departure uh, to live as Christ but to die as gain. And so long as... uh, your wisdom has the, the perfection of that timing involved, then we leave it with you. But we're eager, Father. We're eager to be out of this vile body of sin. We're eager to be out of this world that hates you. We're eager to be uh, gone from uh, the conflict that, uh, that you've placed us in. So um, teach us to number our days that we might present unto you a heart of wisdom. Uh, teach us to make application daily for the glory of your Son. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.